Welcome to the Victory Kitchen, the podcast all about American food rationing during World War II. I'm your host, Sarah Creviston Lee, author, historian, and vintage foodie. I'll be exploring the logistics of food rationing, featuring wartime cookbooks and recipes, and highlighting real home front experiences. We're going to be learning exactly what our grandmothers had to do to get their food to fight for victory. Hi, welcome to this new episode of the Victory Kitchen. This is episode number six, The Dairy Dilemma. Please pardon my scratchy voice. I'm recording really early in the morning before my toddler wakes up. I just wanted to start off by saying that this episode is dedicated to all the farmers and farm workers that are working so hard to provide food for our country during this crisis. Now, you may have seen recently, there's some articles floating around online about dairies dumping their milk. And the first reaction I think that people have is anger because in some places there's a milk shortage. Um, at least for the consumers, it's hard to get milk sometimes. And I found that to be the case in my area. Um, there's still restrictions on how much milk you can get at some stores, not at every story. So yes, this produces a lot of anger, confusion, and it's hard to understand why so much good food would go to waste in a time when we need that food. I wanted to read something from one of the articles of, that are floating around the internet about this milk dumping. So this one article is from Reuters.com. It's titled, U.S. Dairy Farmers Dump Milk as Pandemic Upends Food Markets. The article says, quote, mass closures of restaurants and schools have forced a sudden shift from those wholesale food service markets to retail grocery stores, creating logistical and packaging nightmares for plants processing milk, butter, and cheese. Trucking companies that haul dairy products are scrambling to get enough drivers as some who fear the virus have stopped working. And sales to major dairy export markets have dried up as the food service sector largely shuts down globally. I think this is a really good explanation for this modern crisis. There's a lot kind of to pick out of here. Besides the the bottling, or, well, it says the logistic and packaging nightmares. Um, you know, each market has its own specific requirements for packaging and having to switch from schools and wholesale food service markets to just strictly retail grocery stores. I mean, that can be a logistical nightmare. And the other factor is drivers being afraid to drive um, and that they've stopped working. So on the surface, uh, it might be easy to get angry about the situation. But as we'll find out in today's episode, farming in general, and in this case, dairy farming, is very complex. And it's not something that can really be simplified into one picture or one article. <laughs> um, so in World War II, there was a dairy crisis. And there are a lot of similarities to today's problem. And then it was, of course, very different during World War II as well, because the, the causes of the problem were different. In 1942, milk production had reached an all-time high of 56 billion quarts, but an additional billion quarts was being asked for in production quotas for 1943. 
Now, I mean, that's a lot. That's a lot of milk. And the problem was that farmers were in a tough spot. Feed prices were going up. In January 1943, the OPA set a price freeze on milk. So because feed prices were going up and the price of milk was frozen, farmers were kind of being squeezed out of their profit. Not only that, but dairy associations were really annoyed with the government for meddling in dairy regulations when they already had a handle on it and had for years. Farmers were also complaining that the government was creating an environment for inevitable milk rationing across the country by creating this price ceiling. The cost of feed was going up. And if you know, if you remember from previous episodes, grains, like many other food products, were being used for other wartime purposes. So in the case of grains, food for human consumption and also for alcohols. Um, and I'm sure there's many other purposes that grains were being put to use for. So so it just wasn't enough to offset the money that the farmers were losing. So because of this price freeze, there were no incentives to produce more milk. So an emergency fix on this, the, some farmers started slaughtering their dairy cows because, hey, it's meat. Meat is a hot commodity and um, they could get more money for meat than they could for milk and milk products. But the problem with this is it was a very temporary solution because what about next year when they had to get in their milk quotas? The U.S. would be down a lot of dairy cows and it would take about a year and a half to get those new dairy cows up to production. So that was further adding to the dairy problem. So let's back up to when dairy rationing started in March of 1943. And I'll be talking a bit about butter in this because it is a fat, but it also plays into a lot of the other dairy rationing things. And it is a dairy product, so it kind of um, plays the line a little bit. (laughs) All right, so the dairy products that were rationed were butter, cream, cheeses, but not milk. And this is very important to note because this comes into play later. Milk products were under the red stamp umbrella of the ration program, and the red stamps included meats. The interesting thing about this that I learned through my research for this episode is that all the red stamp items had an interdependent relationship. So, for example, if meat availability was low, dairy products like cheese were considered a protein replacement and their demand went up. So instead of using red points for the more expensive and less available meat, you'd buy more cheese instead, like everyone else in your area. So this created very complex supply challenges in regions or localities. So in the country, this might not be such a problem because there were a lot of farms, but in the city, it would be a problem. So why was milk so important during World War II? The number one reason was nutrition. Milk was considered not just a beverage, but a vital, healthful food. If we look at the food groups from World War II, milk and milk products were in their own food group. It was group number four, and this included fluid, evaporated, dried milk, and cheese. Butter was in its own food group with margarine, which I think is kind of funny. 
Now, I have to mention ice cream here, even though I am going to be doing a separate episode next about ice cream rationing. But ice cream wasn't in one of the seven food groups, sadly. (laughs) But ice cream producers and vendors like to lump their products in with milk as a quote-unquote vital nutritious milk food. They said it was full of vitamins, that it was a real food, and that they knew health-conscious Americans consumed ice cream because they knew what a wholesome dairy food it was. I think that's really hilarious, and I wish I could talk about it more now, but it's such a big topic, and I wanted to save it for its own episode. So stay tuned for that. Um, Okay, so back to the milk situation. It was very tricky because there's only so much milk to go around. And when we talk about like millions of pounds of milk, that sounds like so much. And it was, but the military got first dibs. Dairy production was expanded during the war to provide large amounts of cheese, canned and dried milk for military and lend lease purposes. So civilians got what was left over. So here's an example. Let's say there's 150 million pounds of milk. The farmers and dairy associations had to decide, based on what the government told them and their own local markets dictated, how much of that milk to use to make butter, to go towards cream, to go to making cheese, to go for evaporated and powdered milk, to be used for ice cream, and how much should be sold as liquid milk. If there was a greater demand for liquid milk, then there was less milk available for other dairy products. And another aspect is that Americans were drinking 20% more milk than before the war. So liquid milk was, there was a huge demand for it. There was also a huge demand for butter and cream (laughs) and cheese. So it was tough. It was tough to decide how much milk goes to which product. And they tried their best to get a balance whenever they could. So this complex decision-making, along with government requirements, led to a milk vacuum in some parts of the country, especially in metropolitan areas. So here are the big problems, as if there weren't enough already. (laughs) So milk rationing had been threatened in the newspapers for months since January 1943. If you remember, that's when the price freeze came down from the OPA. So farmers, like dairy farmers and the dairy associations were threatening hey, this is a bad idea. This is going to force milk rationing on us and all of our customers. In October and November of 1943, schools were having a hard time getting milk for their students. In some areas where milk supply had been fine in June of 1943, by September of 1943, they had problems because people were moving back home from summer homes. Populations were increasing. And I'm thinking this is probably due to war job opportunities. Students were back in school and all of these led to a drain on milk supplies for various locations around the country. On top of all this, in August of 1943, dairies were rationed on their glass bottles because of the huge demand for glass containers to replace cans and for other purposes and due to transportation difficulties. That sounds familiar with today's problem. Um, housewives were encouraged to return every unused bottle to the dairy if they wanted to continue to get fresh milk. Wow. I, that is a huge problem because if you've got the product, but you don't have the containers to put it in, what the heck are you going to do? Even just that reason alone, I could see leading to milk dumping because milk is one of those things that you can't just let it sit on a shelf. It, 
has a very short shelf life and it goes bad really quickly. So the final nail in the coffin, I guess you could say, is there was a farm labor shortage and this greatly affected the dairy industry. In some of my research for a book that I'm writing, what I found is that they were turning to alternatives for labor and we know that they use POWs for farm labor in America. And they were also looking at conscientious objectors to work on dairy farms, especially because the farm labor shortage was so dire. Okay, so how did they solve all these problems? Or did they? <laughs> That's a really good question. There were a lot of enterprising people that suggested solutions to these problems. There was the suggestion that dairy rationing was removed from the meat rationing red stamp umbrella. And this would make it so that dairy products would be better regulated on their own. There were other suggestions to prevent fluid milk from being rationed. One was to limit the size of milk sheds by restricting transportation. Another was to eliminate ice cream and cream byproducts. So Zippo ice cream being produced during the war. I think for Americans, that would have been a nightmare. Some people suggested to ration fluid milk on a coupon basis. Another suggestion was to allocate milk to dealers or to markets. Of course, they suggested to increase the supply despite the dairymen breaking production records but then they wanted the demand to be pared down to match the supply. That could be done with milk rationing. So they needed to increase the supply and decrease the demand so that they could meet somewhere in the middle. They also suggested a butterfat reduction in fluid milk and ice cream. Now, this suggestion was accomplished in some areas. They reduced the butterfat in ice cream. I'm not sure if they did it in milk, but I did find some articles talking about how in Iowa they reduced the butterfat content in ice cream. It even shows a congressman trying some of the new ice cream. And this was a big deal because there were laws stipulating how much butterfat went into certain dairy products. All right, so what were some things that were helping? As the war progressed... There was increased deployment of American soldiers and sailors overseas, which meant there was less strain on local milk supplies. Because yes, they loved their soldiers, but they were a strain on some of the local food supplies, <laughs> and especially milk and ice cream. <laughs> Another thing that helped was that fresh milk couldn't be hoarded. You can't hoard a bunch of bottles of milk in your fridge. One newspaper article suggested that the most effective way of increasing production of milk was through higher paying prices for milk and assurance of better supplies of feed for the farmers. That is definitely what the dairy farmers wanted. They wanted higher paying prices for their milk to get rid of that price ceiling, let the markets do their natural thing, and also to have an assurance of the feed that could come to their cows. Another thing that was helping was educating the public. Dairy companies ran ads or regular articles in newspapers explaining the dairy situation as it progressed so customers would understand what was going on. One company in particular was the Sidwell Dairy Company from Iowa City. They ran a weekly article on Tuesdays from November 16, 1943 to August 8, 1944. This series was a goldmine of information. 
Each little article posts a question with an answer. So some examples of the questions are, any cottage cheese today? What's happened to your ice cream? How much do you pay the farmer for his milk? Why in heaven's name do you deliver the milk so early? And will milk production be short in 1944? This was very smart on the dairy company's part because everyone read the newspaper and if you could teach them what the problem was and what the local companies were doing about it as much as they could, or even explaining on from their end what they were being what was being asked of them by the government, then consumer anger, I guess, <laughs> could be dampened down a little bit. I with understanding comes a lot more peace, I guess. And it was just it was a very smart move on these companies' parts to try and teach the public what was going on. Now we come down to the big question. Was milk rationed during World War II? Now, you're probably thinking, you already said before, it wasn't. Well, the short answer is no, but yes, it was. <laughs> so yes and no. It's no because the OPA never officially rationed milk by making it part of the National Ration Stamp Program. However, the War Food Administration did issue an order that specific regions, mostly metropolitan areas, must institute milk rationing. This was really a modified rationing, and it was for a shorter period of time than we think of the other rationed products. Food Distribution Order number 79. So this was based on region and they did not use ration stamps for this. Now, I found references to various areas around the country that ration milk. I am sure there is more than what I'm about to mention, but these are the ones that I could find. So on October 4th, 1943, milk rationing began for Omaha and Council Bluffs, Oklahoma areas. Customers would receive their normal orders of milk, but they wouldn't be able to receive extra milk. On October 20th, milk rationing for one dairy in the Winston-Salem, North Carolina area um, started due to a milk shortage. And the customers were told that shortage would probably only last 50 days. It's good to note that the other two dairies in the area were not rationing milk. So just this one particular dairy in the Winston-Salem area. All right, in November, milk rationing was happening in six Iowa cities, Davenport, Cedar Rapids, Waterloo, Des Moines, Council Bluffs, and Sioux City. On November 1st, milk rationing started in California's five largest metropolitan areas. This, this was intended at first to affect only cities with 100,000 people or more. Los Angeles, Oakland, Sacramento, San Diego, and San Francisco. But then San Jose and Stockton were added. I found this November 1943 article that talked about how milk rationing by dairymen was a thankless job. This is referring to the California market. It talked about how a lot of irate customers were asking for more milk. And the public was asked to hold everything and give them a chance to catch up and iron out the problems with the start of milk rationing. And if there's anything we've learned from this show, it's that when rationing started, it was super confusing for everybody, the suppliers and the customers. One of the wrinkles in this milk rationing deal was a smaller amount of milk 
was available for families with children, while restaurants were still getting 100% of their June deliveries. Now, this was taking place, this rationing was taking place in November, and they're talking about June deliveries. Like, what does June have to do with November? But milk supplies were frozen at the June 1943 level. At least this is what was mentioned in this particular article. So whatever milk they're supplying to customers in June is what they could give their customers in November. Part of this uh, problem was that restaurant accounts hadn't increased since June, but the population had increased. So individual families, many of them with young children, were getting less milk. Also mentioned in this article was that California schools were having a problem securing enough milk. Some were getting less than their usual orders, while others got none. And like I said before, this is not a complete list. No doubt many other large cities across the U.S. faced modified milk rationing. Now, the dairy farmers, they tried to come up with some solutions. One was that they delivered milk every other day as opposed to every day to kind of spread it out. In many cases, the dairy farmers or the distributors, they were the ones that had to decide how to allocate the milk. They did this with priority in mind. One article mentioned that this is where regular consumers came in the priority ladder. First came hospitals. Second came homes in which there were babies. Third came other households, so I guess everybody else. And last came hotels and restaurants. Now, some people called for schools to be exempt from dairy rationing. I don't know if that was ever made a reality, but there were some people asking that that happened so that milk could be delivered to schools without any problems. So let's fast forward to 1944. And this is where dumping milk comes in. One article from June 1944 reported a complaint that in and around the Boston area, milk was being poured down drains because of government regulations, while eager customers were short on milk, cream, and ice cream. In fact, a farmer had reporters come and watch him dump the milk down the drain to make a statement. So on the surface, this seems like a crime. But if we've learned nothing else this episode, it's that agriculture and food production is far more complex than what you get at face value. With the milk scarcity, government orders limited milk dealers to selling only a percentage of June 1943 sale levels. June is a month of normal increases in milk production because of greener pastures, so they naturally had a surplus of milk, but they legally couldn't sell the milk surplus. They could give it away, but processing and bottling costs would be a huge burden because that would be on them, so they had to throw the milk away. In another related article, they explained that the government did anticipate the surplus, so extra milk was diverted for other purposes, and they were happy with the lower level of wastage. So it was a wastage that was expected. And if you think about it, if you have like a lot more of a commodity and then you suddenly flood the market with it, no pun intended for milk, but um, it could drastically lower the cost of milk, and um, that would be detrimental to farmers as well. So they try to keep it a balanced system. And that's what um, the government, I guess, was trying to do. So in the end, we can say that no, milk was not rationed in America by the OPA. But yes, it was rationed for some people. 
Now, if you're interested, I found this amazing wartime video produced by the Borden Milk Company, and it goes through the entire process of milk from the cow until it gets to the customer's door. What's cool about it is that it shows you how they collect the milk from the farmers, how they pasteurize and bottle the milk. It's so fascinating. And I really encourage you to take a look at this film. I've got a link for it on my blog, victorykitchenpodcast.com. After the break, we're going to be talking about our featured cookbook for the day, the Westinghouse Health for Victory Meal Planning Guide from October 1943. And we'll have our story highlight, which is something a little bit different today. I'll be right back. Welcome back. Today's featured wartime cookbook is Health for Victory Meal Planning Guide by Westinghouse Company, October 1943 issue. I think I talked about these um, Health for Victory meal planning guides in my last episode, but I really wanted to feature it today because this whole series is amazing. Uh, Westinghouse Electric and Manufacturing Company out of Mansfield, Ohio, is the one that produced these um, little magazines. And they were designed for the wives of the plant workers. They had a Health for Victory Club. And this club would educate the women on how to prepare nutritious meals, how to pack lunch boxes for their for themselves, for their kids, for their husbands that were in manufacturing, and they would educate them about nutrition. To supplement this program, they produced these magazine-type cookbooks. It's been very hard to pinpoint exactly when these started, but my earliest issue is August 1942. These earlier issues are harder to find, and but you can still find them for sale online. Uh, these the later issues especially, so the issues from 1943 are are easy to find, and these are what I tell people if you want to have at least one cookbook to learn about wartime rationing, you should get one of these issues, um, because not only does it have the recipes at the back, these were far more than just regular cookbooks. Each issue has a theme to it, and this is what they would base the articles inside on. So in this issue, October 1943, it has a picture of a sailor eating ice cream with a really happy face. <laughs> and the subtitle for this issue, or they say featured in this issue, our biggest bargain in food. 88 recipes not in the September issue. And inside all the articles are about milk. So milk and milk products, our biggest bargain in food how to keep milk pure, rich in food value as it comes to you. They tell you how milk is pasteurized and why, and how to safeguard your milk once it gets to your house. They talk about how milk is a food, not merely a beverage. And then they teach you how to incorporate it into your meals so that you are satisfying group number four of the food group wheel from that time. 
And they point out all the different ways that you can get your dairy into your diet, whether it's through cheese or buttermilk or liquid milk, evaporated milk, lots of different ways. And of course, they feature different recipes. But they don't just do that. On top of all that awesome information, they have menus for every single meal in the month. They also teach you how to use these menus, have a market list for these menus, and then have the recipes after that. They even have um, things that like preparations you can do ahead of time, which I think is pretty cool. <laughs> I, I wanted to read a little bit of how they um, how they put these menus together. They say how these menus are planned. Use these menus and you'll avoid all the headaches of meal planning because we've suffered them for you. Have you included everything your family needs for healthful eating? Will they like it? Can you get it? Does it take too many points? We've met all these problems for you. Have helped work out your marketing list and have thought out the things you can do in advance to serve meals quickly. We begin with the basic seven. Foods from each of the seven groups are included every day, some in breakfast, some in lunch, and some in dinner, to make sure you get all the things you need. Then the menus are checked three times at least. Rationed foods are carefully figured. Whenever possible, they are avoided entirely. When used, points are carefully considered in an effort to stay within ration budgets. However, overnight changes in point values may alter the situation slightly. Many h for v members tell us that these menus have helped them save ration points. We believe in thrift, too. I've saved money since I began using h for v menus, many women tell us. That's because they're planned around low-cost foods and make thrifty use of leftovers. They must have eye appeal. The best food in the world does no good unless it is eaten. That's why we plan meals that provide welcome color and texture contrast. We eat with our eyes a lot of the time, whether we realize it or not. Then the Taste Testers Club goes to work on these menus. All H4V recipes are tested to make sure they are foolproof. On top of that, they are all tested for taste too by the Taste Testers Club, a critical jury of men and women whose thumbs up or thumbs down decide whether a dish is used in these menus. There are plenty of men in the club, so you can be sure nothing sissy gets by. They prove again and again that flavor's the thing. They're often surprised they enjoy foods they think they don't like. And then they teach you how to use these menus. How, they say use one full day's menu at a time and suggestions if foods are scarce. Um, about the budgeting thing, um, in some of their other issues, they mentioned that these menus are figured so that you can be spending about 14 to $16 a week on groceries. To us today, that seems like, wow, that is an amazing bargain. But <laughs> this is kind of a, um, a soapbox of mine. Um, $14 today means nothing. I mean, that doesn't mean anything to us because we're not factoring in inflation. And so I did the calculation one time for the 14 to $16 range from 1943. And I think it was like, 2018 values and it was about uh, with factored inflation it worked out to be about $150 a week in today's money value and I think that's pretty fair uh depends on the size of your family but I think for a family of three or four $150 a week is um a pretty good estimate for what um to spend now it's not taking into account the the price of foods because as you know in wartime it was so different. And today it's so different. You'd have to factor each food separately and do the calculation uh, to figure out 
what the cost of the food would be in today's money value. So, um, yeah, be very careful when in the uh, if you run across, you know, monetary values in old cookbooks or old ads and things because we have to take into account inflation. Um, and it's a very easy uh, calculation to do. And I will provide the link on my uh, blog. And it's a link to my other, my history blog, where I, I laid it all out and did some practice calculations so you could see how to do it for yourself. All right. So getting into the recipes I tried for this episode, I tried two cheese recipes because that's one easy way to get milk into your diet, especially if there aren't big milk drinkers in the family. I tried these two recipes, cheese English monkey and rarebit. Now, I'll be honest, cheese English monkey, I picked just because of the funky name um, <laughs> and because I had everything on hand. Same thing for the rarebit. So I think I have come across English monkey. It might have been in a British wartime cookbook. This is a really great recipe to use up like stale bread or bread ends. Like in my family, nobody eats the bread ends. So I save those and then grind them up and stick the crumbs in the freezer. You can also like dry them out, but I just usually stick them in the freezer. But that's what I used. I had bread crumbs in the freezer. It calls for two cups breadcrumbs, two cups milk, two tablespoons butter, fortified margarine or drippings, one cup soft mild cheese cut into very small pieces, two eggs slightly beaten, one teaspoon milk. So for the soft mild cheese, I had some farmer's cheese. I had some cream cheese I needed to use up, and then a little bit of mozzarella cheese. This was a very easy recipe to make. And what it is for is they suggest to serve it on toast or toasted crackers. And it was surprisingly tasty. Uh, my husband, myself, and our oldest, we ate it and enjoyed it. The second recipe is for rarebit. I've always wanted to try rarebit. I don't know if it's because like when I read it and say it, it sounds like I'm saying rabbit, but has nothing to do with rabbits. <laughs> and I'm not sure why it's called rarebit, but I think this was our favorite recipe. So rarebit is another kind of cheese spread. And it's a little bit different though, because it does, it uses butter or margarine, half pound of soft cheese, half cup evaporated milk, a little bit of cayenne, one egg, and then salt and pepper to taste. This is just a cheese sauce. <laughs> and um, I used margarine in this. And then for the soft cheese, I used the rest of the farmer's cheese and then some cream cheese to supplement what I didn't have. Um, like I didn't have enough poundage <laughs> to make this recipe. So I used the cream cheese. And the egg is also, once again, used to thicken it. So you're cooking it over the stove. This stuff was amazing. Oh my gosh, we loved this stuff. In fact, it was gone by the next day. And they suggest in the recipe that two tablespoons tomato soup added just before serving improves the flavor and color. And I thought, that is weird. Like, why would you add tomato soup to that? But I did it because we just happened to have tomato soup that day for lunch. And I actually couldn't really tell much of a difference in the flavor. But then... um. I mean, it still tasted really good, but then I got, I decided to get really fancy and I added salsa. <laughs> so obviously not wartime recommended, but wow, it was awesome. It was like a, a wartime 
queso without any queso <laughs> and uh, ate it with tortilla chips. So totally, totally cheated. I did try these on crackers, by the way, like it suggested, and it was good. But I think on tortilla chips, it was the best um, because it was mixed with salsa and, you know, salsa and chips go together. But um, oh my gosh, super good. We ate all of it. I did want to mention for the cheese English monkey, um, I tried it on a variety of crackers, but I felt that the cracker that it tasted the best on was not a wartime cracker <laughs> at all, sadly. Um, I tried it on Ritz, Triscuits, and then some, did I try it on Wheat Thins? No, I don't think I did, but um, I should have tried it on saltine crackers. That's what I should have done. But anyway, I the one that I thought tasted on the best was Keebler's brand of Toasted's onion crackers. Ah, that was so good. And so I thought maybe the addition of onion to the cheese English monkey would actually be um, a really tasty variation. And variations are okay when it comes to wartime recipes. That's what they encourage you to do, right? (laughs) So anyway, two really yummy recipes that uh, were new to us and we really liked them. If you'd like to get a look, I'll have pictures of these recipes and the cookbook over on my podcast blog. Today's story highlight is a little bit different. I'm going to be reading an article from the Hammond Times entitled Predictions on Rationing of Food by Henry McLemore. This was published in January of 1943. And I wanted to read this to you because this is a very tongue-in-cheek view of wartime rationing before it started, like the, the bulk of the rationing. So at this point, sugar and coffee are being rationed. But everything else has yet to be rationed. They're just talking about it and they know it's coming. And I'll talk about the writer a little bit more at the end. But I just want to let you know he's a a little bit insensitive about um, certain groups of people. But just keep that in mind. At the risk of becoming known as Nostradamus Macklemore, I'm going to make a few prophecies on the far-reaching effects of the general food rationing plan, which goes into operation on February 2nd. It will influence love and romance. It will influence music. It will influence people and lose them friends. The effect of the ration plan on love and romance is as obvious as Venus de Milo has never won the National Bowling Championship. Do you think for a minute that in the future a man with a great big appetite would even consider courting a girl with a great big appetite? No, indeed, when there are sparrow-like eaters running around loose with just as many points in their ration book as the hefty eaters. Consider her appetite. From now on, the real charm of a maid for a man will not lie in blue eyes or dimples or skill in needlepoint, but rather how she tucks away that food when it is placed in front of her. Just as heiresses have been warned to guard against someone marrying them for their money, light-eating girls will be cautioned, Are you sure that it's you he loves, my dear, and not all those ration points you have left over each month? Men, of course, face the same danger. The most eligible man in town may be the fellow with stomach ulcers. Girls who like their food are going to think twice before plighting their troth to a man who needs seven or eight hundred pounds a day to keep his six-foot, two-hundred-pound frame moving around. When inquiring into a suitor's background, parents will care more about the oats he has eaten than the ones he has sown. The ration plan will result in a thousand new songs. 
Already the slap-happy Wagners of Tin Pan Alley are hard at work composing immortal songs to the food shortage. Some song titles. I met a 700-point baby in an A&P store. My heart went on a riot when I met a girl on a diet. My heart is all a flutter over a girl who doesn't like butter. I can't ration my passion for you. Just wait and see. There'll be some even worse than these. As for friendship, the food you serve a guest in your home is going to show plainer than any of your other actions how much you think of him. Give him a dinner that costs you more points than Notre Dame gets in a season, and he will think of you as a true friend. On the other hand, give him a dinner which his knowing eye will quickly see hasn't cost you more than a few measly points in your ration book, and he will never again shake your hand with the same fervor. For the first time since the founding of this country, friendships are going to be made and lost over such items as canned sifted peas, dried apricots, catsup, and noodle soup. In the future, ration points will determine the great hosts and hostesses of the country. Those who are willing to sacrifice all week to really give a bang-up dinner on Saturday night, and not necessarily the wealthy, will be the famed entertainers. Those big dinners. Already old Nostradamus Maclevore can see the society columns. A big dinner will be written up like this. The highest point dinner of the season was given last evening by Mr. and Mrs. Gus Riboflavin. Mr. and Mrs. Riboflavin, who has existed on plentiful cereals for a fortnight in order to give the 2,700-point dinner, were so weak that they had to be helped from the table at an early hour. The dinner started with a 60-point appetizer, was followed by a 200-point clear soup, a 500-point entree, and they shot the rest of the points on the salad and dessert. Maybe this all sounds far-fetched, but wait and see. Nostradamus McLemore has never made a wrong prediction on general food rationing in the United States. Okay, so, as you can see, very, very sarcastic. And you can kind of sense a note of, like, bitterness in there. Um, you can tell he's not looking forward to rationing. And... Um, it's interesting his uh, social predictions that will happen. I can't say that any of these did happen, but um, a very humorous view on the situation. Now, Henry McLemore is an interesting fellow. He was a popular sports writer of the time. He was a news columnist, and he even tried his hand at some acting post-war. He was liked for his tongue-in-cheek humor he displayed in his writing, at one point, from what I could understand, um, he enlisted and his wife took over his syndicated news column, which was kind of a fun slant. Unfortunately, he is best known for his harsh outspokenness in favor of Japanese internment during World War II. And like many people who were equally outspoken about it, this haunted him for the rest of his life. It's kind of a, an interesting parallel to today. Um, something that he wrote about harshly in his newspaper just was forever out there. And it's something like once it's there, you can't really take it back. It's very similar to today, to today where people say, you know, once it's out in the Internet, it's out there forever. So just a really good lesson that just, you know, you have to be careful what you say. Um, one thing I wanted to point out about the article itself is he mentions that uh, rationing is set to go into operation February 2nd. And since January, the OPA had a date of when they thought rationing would start, but they kept pushing it back. So at this point in January, um, they were saying February 2nd. Later, I've 
saw some articles talking about like February 24th. And then later they thought it would be March 1st. But as we know, it started at the end of March on the 30th. So yeah, that's why it says February 2nd here, but that's not when rationing started. Now, what I want to see are some songs. (laughs) These song titles are fantastic. So someone out there, write a song about rationing. I can't ration my passion for you. That's the best. If you've got a song title inspired by wartime rationing, send it on over. I'd love to hear it. Or if you have a wartime food story that you'd like to share from your family, I would love to hear about that too. So I can share it here on the podcast. So just a reminder to leave a review so others can find my podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, you can go to anchor.fm slash Sarah Creveston Lee and click on support. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you next time. Bye.